Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 11th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, journalist Phil Ross talks about how tomorrow's electrical wires and microchips may be filled with viruses. Mathematician Bruce Bouquet reveals the dangers of probability research. His picks for the first round of Major League Baseball's playoffs were the Yankees, Twins, Padres, and Dodgers. They all lost. And Scientific American News editor Phil Yam reports on the Star Trek memorabilia auction here in New York last week and his unsuccessful attempts to buy batleths. Plus, we'll quiz you about some recent science in the news. First up, Phil Ross. He's the online editor at IEEE Spectrum, our favorite science magazine that's not Scientific American. He wrote the article Viral Nanoelectronics in our October issue, and I called him at his office in Manhattan. Hi, Phil. How you doing? Fine. So tell me about viral nanoelectronics. We're actually using viruses to to do what? Well, to be essentially a, a clothes horse on which to drape stuff. You might think of them as chocolate-covered viruses. Only it's not chocolate they're covered with. It's typically metals um, or some um, semiconducting material. Uh, the advantage of a virus that's long and skinny is that it's long and skinny. And because it's made from materials that they're proteins and they're not so very different from the things we see in antibodies, they, they tend to stick to other things properly, just as an antibody might be made to stick to something else. And if you can engineer these proteins to be just as you'd like them, you can get them to stick preferentially to just about anything. We're talking about the proteins that are on the surface of a virus. Yes, these particular viruses are the kind that can't make you sick unless you're a bacterium. They are phages that very specific for bacteria. They only infect bacteria, mm -hmm. right? In fact, that you can use them to kill a bacteria if you want, kill yeah. bacteria if you want to. And there was a novel way back when by uh, Sinclair Lewis, I think Aerosmith, where his this is in the 1920s before antibiotics were invented, where his scientist hero tries to use phages to, as a way of killing off bacteria to save people's lives. And uh -huh. uh, that, went in the, that was an actual research project, which has come back now that bacteria are, in many cases, immune to antibiotics. So we use this particular virus because it is very long and skinny. Yes. And the, the proteins on the surface have certain qualities, and you, can, and you can therefore use the virus itself to do all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, especially since the virus has another trick. It's got a different set of proteins on the ends. And this means that you could do one thing with the viruses that coat the long, skinny thread and something else that coat the tips, which means, for instance, you can make the viruses um, preferentially line up head to tail with their heads attracting their tails, or you can make them line up side by side. This way you can, pr you can produce long threads or wires. You can also produce uh, thin sheets or films. So you could actually produce a wire that is completely viral on the inside and is coated with metal all around it. A metal or some other substance of electronic interest, yes. And, and then if these things line up line head, to, head to toe, they would become a long conducting wire, let us say. And if they line up um, in sheets, as you might have them do if they were a film on top of another film or on top of a substrate, then you can get a one molecule or, or one virus thick uh, sheet. And what kind of applications are they thinking about for these materials? Well, um, the most interesting one, the one that seems closest, is in batteries. Uh, if you had an entire sheet of coated virus functioning as one of the electrodes in a, in a battery, and if onto that sheet you managed to bind, again, using these same uh, biochemical tools that make the virus in the first place, 
a, an, a substance containing an electrolyte, which is the substance that separates electrodes and provides the batteries juice, you could get ultra-thin sheets of batteries. And this is very useful in making very small, efficient uh, ion exchange batteries of the sort we are familiar with in lithium-ion batteries that we have in our computers, say. Right. The article talks about just how battery weight can be such an issue in some applications and how an extremely thin, lightweight battery could be such an advantage. Yes. If it were more efficient, it's just another way of saying you have a battery that of a given size that can do more work, which is, and since batteries are the Achilles heel in most electronics, most portable electronics nowadays, anything that cuts the weight of a battery while maintaining its strength is of great interest, particularly to the military in the beginning, because they can pay a lot for the extra performance. But once you get a large number of things produced, once you get a good number of units on the market, presumably it will get cheap enough to be used in consumer products. We should probably uh, talk about Angela Belcher as the person who's doing most of this work. Yeah, she's uh, quite an interesting character. Uh, Her idea is totally original with her, and not that the idea of using bacteria to do stuff, but viruses to function as templates. So now tell me something, though. How do you think people would react to a wire that is completely filled up with viruses mm-hmm. inside, even even if you try to explain that those viruses can't af- infect human beings? Well, if you really want to weird people out, you should tell them that such viruses are, are all around us in every drop of water in the world. Um, you cannot... You go in, you go to the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, and you take a, a cup out, and it probably has a trillion phages floating around in it. It's all over, and it does us not one particle of damage. However, if it were not for these phages, it would the, the bacteria in the water would become would get completely out of control right. with who knows what horrible 1950s style grade B movie results. Right. So wh- where do you think all this is going to be uh, five or ten years from now? I think even before then, we're going to get better batteries. We're going to get lots of little things in which these materials are incorporated. Whether we get the full ball of wax, things produced from the ground up by little molecular helpers in that time, I don't know. We will get certain highly defined things because we already have them. Angela Belcher is making it. But what she would really like to do is get the most valuable machines that we now make, microchips. And one of the great problems in building microchip-type circuitry from uh, the ground up using nanoelectronics is getting them to assemble themselves. It's not, it's not, it, it, we get to a point where we can no longer carve the channels and, and uh, patterns we like using photolithography because the dimensions are too small for light to manage. So what you really, would really like is to have little tiny robots the size of atoms or conglomerations of atoms do the work for you. Viruses come closer than anything we've tried yet. Very interesting. The article in the October issue of Scientific American, Viral Nanoelectronics. Phil Ross, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Phil Ross's article can also be found on our website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, Congress is considering a law requiring belts with buckles equipped with small explosive devices developed by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Police could detonate the buckles so that fleeing criminals' pants would fall down, tripping them. Story two, researchers have come up with a way for digital cameras to store detailed images on a single pixel. 
Story three, Roger Kornberg won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry last week. His father also won a Nobel Prize. And story four, Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion. And you thought the pants falling down story was wacky, didn't you? We'll be back with the answer, but first, Bruce Bouquet is a mathematician at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He's also a big baseball fan and analyzed probable outcomes for this year's baseball playoffs before they began. And all four of the teams he thought were more likely to win in the first round did the other thing. I decided to annoy him further by calling him at his office in Newark. Professor Bouquet, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. So uh, you had a rough week for a uh, for a mathematician. Well, right, things don't always go as the uh, probabilities say, because uh, the probability wasn't 100% on any of those series. But uh, I don't think that necessarily I was wrong. Maybe it was just that the players didn't play as they were supposed to. Right. That's the beautiful thing about what you do. You were not wrong. What, what was the actual, for the Yankee Tiger series, what was oh, the actual that breakdown? That was, I think that was about 75% uh, probability of the Yankees winning a three-game series. A five-game right. series, the best three out of five. Sure. You know, the the way, I guess, to look at this, and tell me if I'm wrong, is if there were a hundred best-of-five series, you're you're not saying the Yankees definitely win. You're saying if they play a hundred times, the Yankees win 75 times. Right, around 75, and there would right. be a certain standard deviation. But, yeah, somewhere around there, probably between 70 and 80. Right, that's based on the, the, the input data that you had before yes. the series begins. Yeah, so, based so, on that data as well as the model that I had developed uh, years ago. Right, and so that means that there's a 25 uh, of, of the 100 series play, 25 times the Tigers win, and that's not insignificant. So no. it's, it's an upset, but it's not... You were not wrong. You were you were just showing what the chances were. So that's right. And uh, now, what are the chances, however, that all four of the series go the other way from what you figured they would? Oh, that that would be uh, fairly small. I believe that uh, with the uh, Minnesota Oakland series, I had a seventy percent chance of Minnesota, and I had a. Uh, about, I think, a 60% chance in the other two series. So the, the probability of them going, them all going wrong would be about 25% times 30% times about 40% and times 40%. So it's, it's only about 1%, I think, off the top of my head. Well, maybe. well then you really did beat the odds. Yeah, Congratulations. <laughs> Tell me about the, uh, the work that you do that's, uh, that's not baseball related. Okay, right. You know, baseball is just one way that I've found to interest students in math, and it demonstrates how math is applicable in real life. And uh, that's really what I do. I'm an applied mathematician. I'm trained as an applied mathematician. And the work that we do here at NGIT in our department is almost entirely what I would call math you can picture. So my work, uh, the background in my work, my PhD is in an area of math called detonation theory, the math of explosives. So how do you build a better explosive? I used to work at Los Alamos Labs. Uh, that was my first job out of graduate school where, of course, they've developed nuclear weapons. Uh, since then, I've gone on, since I moved to the East Coast, to, shall we say, more peaceful pursuits, uh, where most of my research now deals with math biology in terms of helping doctors diagnose disease and evaluating the effectiveness of treatments of disease. And uh, recently, I've even done some work with an organization that uh, used statistics in order to improve what I would call the sanctity of the U.S. food supply. So you could use math for a lot of things that relate to the real world, math you can picture. And baseball is just one 
example of that, and I'm no expert in baseball, but I've shown, I feel like I've shown over the years that just using mathematical knowledge, you can glean a lot of insights into how the game works and really understand a lot of what goes on in the game. I got to tell you, with, with the food supply issues, you, you are having a tough week. <laughs> well, that had nothing to do with me. Well, actually, if you go with the organization that, uh, that, that I did this work for, what, it, uh, what I've done is I've uh, given them uh, strategies for how should they inspect their food such that the food gets kosher certification. And that, that uh, it turns out that you are allowed to have bugs in food in this country. I didn't realize that before right. I started doing this work. And that uh, how do you make sure that it's at a low enough level that it uh, satisfies the laws of kosher? Right. Basically, you're allowed to have insect parts in food because it would be virtually impossible not to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you get food with that supervision, uh, you likely have a lot less of those insect parts than, than you would have in, in other things. So do you want to go out on a limb and uh, predict the next series? Sure, sure. Why not? I, I can only improve from here, I figure. So uh, what I have is that the Mets have about a 60% chance of beating the Cards. Okay, In the American League, we have the Tigers with a 58% chance of beating the A's. So it looks like uh, hopefully the Mets and the Tigers in the World Series. And uh, though I haven't done the math yet, um, we hope that the Mets win. Even though I'm a Yankee fan, I'll uh, I'll go with you because I'm a New Yorker. I see. Okay. Well, Dr. Bouquet, thanks very much. This was fun, and uh, maybe we'll check in next week to see how you do on the next round. Thank you very much. That would be great, and may the power of math be with you. For more picks from Bruce Bouquet, he's usually writer, go to www.egrandslam.com. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, explosive belt buckles to trip up thieves when pants fall. Story two, digital camera images on a single pixel. Story three, Nobel laureate's father also won a Nobel. And story four, Google spent $1.65 billion for YouTube. Time's up. Story two is true. Rice University researchers have come up with a way to store entire images on a single pixel using micro mirrors. For more info, check out J.R. Minkle's article, Camera Reconstructs Image from Single Pixel, at www.siam.com news. Story three is true. New Nobel laureate Roger Kornberg is the son of Nobel laureate Arthur Kornberg. In fact, seven children of Nobel Prize winners have gone on to win Nobels. And story four is true. Google paid big bucks for YouTube. Lawsuits over use of copyrighted materials without permission to commence immediately. All of which means that story one about explosive belt buckles and falling pants to trip up criminals is, of course, totally bogus. However, police in Salinas, California did grab a guy who was trying to run from them when his incredibly baggy pants fell down. The California Highway Patrol notes that numerous chases are now coming to abrupt ends because of suspects wearing baggy pants. Next up, Siam News Editor Phil Yam. Last week, Christie's Auction House here in New York City transported a lot of money out of the pockets of Star Trek fans for show memorabilia. Phil attended day one of the auction, after which I called him at his office. Hey, Phil, how you doing? Great. How are you doing? I'm okay. So you you were at the Christie's Star Trek auction last week. I actually just went to the first day, and uh, there were only the, most of the people who were dressed in costume were actually the Christie's employees. <laughs> okay, so I did see a Picard lookalike, and there was a Mr. Spock walking around. But that Mr. Spock was from actually the Late Night with Conan O'Brien show, and they were filming a skit, obviously. 
So people who showed up to bid tended to show up in, in regular civilian clothes and they were should, serious. That's right. They showed up in their usual 21st century outfits. I forgot we, we're in the 21st century, that's aren't right. we? <laughs> it always comes as a surprise. So It sounds uh, more futuristic that way. It really does. And did you bid on anything? Yes, I did. I, I did try to get something. Um, it was very difficult because I really wanted the Klingon Batleth swords. These are those curved blades that Worf used to use to fight with uh, other Klingons and other Federation troops. You don't have to explain. Everybody who's listening knows what well, a Batleth just, sword just, is. To make it clear, because I also wanted the Lurpas, which are those giant Q-tips that uh, Kirk and Spock fought with. <laughs> right, giant Q-tips. One's in the blade and the other end's like a bludgeon, but it looks like a Q-tip. Right, right. Uh, but those went first, so what I was really saving up for the Batleth, and I started getting into a, a bidding war with a telephone bidder, actually. And th- this was all in Quatlus? No, this was actually in U.S. dollars. I, huh. I was kind of surprised that no one actually bid in Quatlus. The Christie's Big Board, where they actually flash the current bid, you know, does translate things into euros, British pounds, Japanese yen, but they did not have Quatlus, disappointingly. But uh, I actually started bidding on the uh, on the uh, Batleths, and I decided to give up at 5500 and let the other bidder have it. Now you you do have a fully operational holodeck at home in which you could do Klingon calisthenics. Um it, yeah, when I close my eyes and imagine it, sure, yeah, that works just fine. But no, I haven't decided, I was trying to convince my wife that maybe we can actually ha- redo the entire dining room into some sort of uh, Voyager theme of just buy enough furniture but the chairs, the table and the console for instance. Hey, <laughs> be the coolest dining room we'd ever have. Wow, a, uh, a Star Trek fan with a wife. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk it possible, right? <laughs> so, what was the uh, you know the most uh, memorable thing that you saw there? Thing or person? Thing or person? I I, I think just the ships themselves. They had two models um, prominently uh, displayed on the center stage: the Enterprise C, I believe, and the original uh, Enterprise D from the Next Generation. And you really look if you look closely at them, you see the level of detail that the artist had put into it. And it's really quite impressive. Now, are these the models that when we would would see on television a shot of the entire ship, it was actually these models? That's right. It's, it's exactly these models themselves, the ones that are that are actually on the small screen and actually on the big screen as well. So, uh, of course, those are extreme. Those are up for sale, and they're very popular. The um, all the ships are very popular. I mean, the Borg cube, the miniature Borg cube, only thirty inches square, sold for eighty thousand dollars. Wow. Yes, and the Enterprise. E, uh, which appeared in the movies, sold for $110,000. But uh, what's just, what was surprising to me um, was just how, how much these items went for. I mean, to, to sell for um, more than 10 times what uh, Christie's had estimated, it shows that Christie's just vastly underestimated the demand or the ability of Star Trek fans to pay for these things. Or that there's still a huge, you know, love of Star Trek uh, that, um, you know, people have money to spend on it. Uh, whether or not it'll retain its value, will people still watch it and be aware of it 25, 30 years from now? Who knows? You know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I think a lot of scientists and science writers who have grown up love Star Trek. But, uh, you know, maybe it's formula got a little tiring, so we just need to take a break, and maybe a new generation will find it interesting. And sure enough... Maybe a $5,500 set of Batless could go for twice that, you know, 30 years from now. Who knows? Star Trek, the next next generation. Yes, that's right. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Phil. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Steve. For more, check out Phil's blog entry at blog.siam.com. By the way, the 78-inch-long Enterprise D went for $576,000. That's a lot of gold-pressed latinum. In a jingle. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. Science Video News stories are now available at the website. And check out the daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Uh, sorry, Meg. Daddy loves you, but Daddy also loves Star Trek. And in all fairness, Star Trek was here first.